Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Let me read for us. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Sorry, I lost my place. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be together. Before we jump in, uh, I just want to say a word of prayer. Lord, we draw near to you together, and we acknowledge together that we are here because you have loved us, you have shown us yourself, you've given us your word, and we have good reason to gather and worship you and sit under your teaching, these sacred words. Lord Jesus, teach us. We open up our hearts, and we come to you, Lord, uh, hungry and thirsty, and we need food and drink, and you can give it to us. So we pray that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. So recently, Jamie and I were on a date, uh, and just for a bit of fun, I asked her, what would be your ideal day? And I told her there were no parameters. She could go anywhere at any time. Uh, immediately. She could eat anything. She could be with anybody. But it all had to be within 24 hours. And an hour later, as we talked, we had watched the sunrise on the top of a mountain. We had lemon ricotta pancakes for breakfast. We visited Paris. We listened to a string quartet at the Louvre. We had dinner on a rooftop in Italy at which all of Jamie's favorite obscure bands were playing for us live. It was pretty awesome. And it's a day like that, maybe it's different, probably different for you. It's a day like that, that we would, at the end of it, lean back, sigh, kick up our feet, and say, this is the life. We're all captured by some definition of the good life, we could call it. The good life is the blessed life. The life that's going to be satisfying and fulfilling that we believe is the ultimate ideal. It's our deepest desire. As Christians, it's the kind of life that we believe is blessed by God. And these desires, both dignified and depraved at times, drive us and determine our purposes in life, our pursuits, and how we respond when they go unfulfilled. In Matthew 5, Jesus is saying something about 
the real good life. The life that is truly blessed by God. And what he says is not what we would expect. It's probably not what we would have written. It's not most likely what we would have asked for. And yet, according to Jesus, it is the truly fulfilling life. So as we uh, sit together under Jesus' teaching, we're going to narrow in on a few verses. We're not going to go through the whole text, but we're going to see that in these Beatitudes, in this good life that Jesus declares, he exposes our dreams, he dignifies our disappointments, and he shows us our only comfort in life and in death. So our dreams. What kind of dreams do you have of the good life? What is the kind of life that you think would make you happy? What would it look like for your life to go well? We all have one. And what would need to change about your life right now in order for it to be good or be better? Envision it for a moment. Let's do it together. It may look something like this. My life will be good when I have friendships that are fulfilling and encouraging, in which I find mutual respect and appreciation. I have a loving girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse. They're attractive and they adore me. I'm married. And I have a marriage in which there's trust, companionship, romance, and intimacy. I have kids that stay out of trouble, go to college, and get married themselves. I have a specific career in which my passions intersect with my skills, a salary that provides for my family, job security, respect from my peers. I have a good retirement plan in which I can move somewhere pleasant, still be able to visit my grandkids, and potentially take up a new hobby. I'm happy and healthy, and my family and friends are the same. I have no worry about whether I will have what I need. I'm free from conflict, dysfunction, anxiety, sorrow, shame. I'm seen as a good person, a faithful Christian who is happy and sacrificial. Sounds like a great life, right? Sounds good to me. Good gifts from God, absolutely. And I'm living that life on some level right now, and it's awesome, and I'm grateful. But how close do these definitions of the good life resemble what Jesus says is the good life? And what happens when these things become the marks of ultimate blessing from God? When they are the marks of his presence and his favor, his love, even more, these are the marks of somebody who has pleased God and gotten from him his response. We look down on the prosperity gospel, the gospel that says, well, God really just wants to give you health and wealth. That's the good news. That's what Jesus died for, for you to have your best life now. And we say it's utterly foolish 
to believe in such things. And yet, do we live with a vision of the good life that actually communicates and reveals that we believe that that's true? And maybe you don't think that that's true, but the answer to that question becomes crystal clear when our dreams go unfulfilled. Our disappointments, these dreams that we have are fickle. The good life comes and goes. And maybe you are sitting here this morning, whether people know it or not, and you feel that acutely. For example, just as your best friend gets a raise, you get fired. You finish graduate school with joy, and as you pursue the career you've always wanted, you're told that you're not cut out for it. Just as you land that job you've always wanted, you find that your spouse has a terminal illness. You get married, but you find that your spouse is living in hidden sin and doesn't want to get help. You get married, and you're living in hidden sin, and you don't know how to get help. Your mother adores you, but your father cuts you down in private. Your child graduates from college, but your spouse looks at you with apathy. And there's moments where they regret that they married you. You're healthy at 50, but you have no savings for retirement. Or you experience the accomplishment of retirement, but your body is falling apart. Or you find that you're dissatisfied with a life that feels meaningless. Or maybe everything seems to be going well on the outside. You can look at all the practical things and all the ducks are in a row, but there's this blanket of shame and inadequacy within you that you just cannot shake. And you walk around feeling unwanted, dissatisfied with life. Or maybe... Tragic things happen. Like my brother and sister-in-law who experienced the elation of pregnancy only to lose their little baby boy, Levi, 12, day, or 12 weeks before their due date. Tragedy strikes. The good life comes and it goes. It's fickle. So often we lose the things that we love and the things that we dream for don't come our way. We fail to experience of the joy of what we deem to be the blessed life. We experience the pain of the fallenness and fracture of our world, our bodies, our hearts, and our hearts are rent by grief and anger and fear of what's going to come. And yet at the same time, some of that grief is because our own dreams of the blessed life have become ultimate. Satisfaction and the pleasure of the good life itself can become the supreme jewel of which we spend our whole lives chasing, scratching, and clawing that we would find it and hold it in our hands. But when pleasure is the prize, we always find ourselves disappointed. When it doesn't come, and when it does For the pursuit of pleasure leaves us exhausted and caught in this cul-de-sac of futility. 
For even the joy of fulfilled dreams inevitably drain us and lead us to a dissatisfaction that requires a conquest for more. We get this good thing, and yet we still feel that ache, that longing for joy, and so we have to run after this thing. Even good things. We need to hold on to those things when we get them that preserve our comfort, and all that threatens those things we need to keep at bay. In this, our dreams can easily become slave drivers rather than the liberators we'd thought they'd be. For me, I graduated college, was passionate about the gospel, was going into ministry, providing hope to the hopeless, only to find myself drifting deeper and deeper and deeper into a pit in which I was the one who was hopeless. I dealt with depression for many years and still do to this day. And when it first hit, I was frustrated. I was confused. I didn't know what was happening at the trial that I was facing. I felt numbed by this unseen amorphous cloud that I had no idea how to get out of. And so I prayed. I did what a good Christian would do, right? I prayed. I longed. I sang songs of deliverance. I taught. I preached, I cared, and I found no consolation from God. There were moments I felt cursed by him. I cried out, God, are you punishing me for something? I'm serving you. Why won't you give me relief from this pain? And so in that, though, I felt, whether I realized it or not at the time, I felt this mingling of both pain and pride. I felt like my anguish was a sign of God's departure from me. And I started to believe that it was true. The dwindling of my happy dream revealed I had mistakenly equated God's blessing with pleasure, with me getting what I want. And my pain exposed the idol of my comfort, the deification of my dream of the good life. But in the dark, God was bringing into the light ugly things. Something in me and something in the world around me, the world wasn't as bright and beautiful as I thought it was. And neither was my heart. This is what God does when we face disappointment. He actually brings us into reality. But reality is frightening when we meet it on its terms. The depth of the brokenness around and within us is often too much for us to bear. And so rather than going to the Lord for comfort, we try and comfort ourselves. We seek to assuage our pain with distractions. Anything that would take our eyes off of what causes us affliction. We pour ourselves into our work. We fill our Amazon shopping carts with toys and clothes and the things that we need. We avoid the things and the people that remind us of our sin and our suffering. We scroll through our phones, hoping to be entertained and even get a little bit of approval from our social media followers. Or we turn to things like pornography, alcohol, to help us deal with the void 
that we feel within our souls, the disappointment. And in this, we are trying to escape what is because we really don't believe that God is who he says he is and that he wants to meet us right where we are. And in comforting ourselves, we only get more pain, not less. Even our efforts to soothe our affliction fail and leave us disappointed. And in self-soothing, we are taking ourselves actually out of the pathway of God's healing comfort. The way to real comfort is not alleviating our own suffering, but lamenting to the Lord. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. God invites us to mourn over our affliction. And he honors our mourning. Mourning over the affliction of those we love. Maybe you have a child that's going through something difficult, something life-altering, and it tears your hearts apart. And it's easy to run away from those things. And Jesus and the Lord invites us, talk to me about what hurts. We talk to God about what is causing us pain. We lay it all out there for him. He invites us to lament like David did in Psalm 38. These words were amazingly helpful for me in my pain. David says this, I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. All my desires and dreams of the good life, you know them completely and all my sighing over their unfulfilled dreams are before you. They're not hidden from you. He says, my heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear. He's even lamenting the fact that he's there before the Lord and he, he's, he's covered his ears with distractions, with idols of comfort, and he's confessing them to the Lord and he's saying, I'm, I'm like a deaf man. You're speaking to me and I'm not hearing because I've plugged up my ears. But here I am. But for you, O Lord, do I wait, he says. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. So even as we cry out, like David did in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord? There are things that we are dealing with that if it's according to the doctor's diagnosis, it's not going to change. And so we, we cry out, Lord, how long? How long will you forget me forever? And in that groaning, we hold on to oftentimes with feeble hands to the promise that he will indeed answer us. And Jesus declares in Matthew 5, that he will. That he will. He declares that when we mourn in the way that David does in Psalm 38, we are blessed. How can he say such a thing? How could it be that mourning is a blessing? 
He can say it because he can finish the statement. Blessed are those who mourn for or because they will be comforted. That is why the mourners are blessed. It is a blessing to mourn because it ushers us into the consolation that is on the other side of suffering. When we face our suffering, when we face reality on its own terms, we are in the pathway of God's comfort. Mourning isn't blessed because sin and suffering are good. Mourning is blessed because it is the good response to what isn't good. Mourning is in opposition to seeking our own comfort, and it gives way to real comfort. Even more, what if pleasure on the other side of pain is better than pleasure without any pain at all? Let me say that again. What if pleasure on the other side of pain is better than pleasure without any pain at all? Think about this example. It's getting cold. It's probably not going to get as cold as New Hampshire here, but it's going to get cold. And think about you get caught outside on a really, really cold evening. You forgot your gloves. You don't have a hat. You're caught outside. Maybe your car broke down and your fingers feel like they're falling off, your toes, your ears. Then you make it home. You get some warm clothes on, maybe take a warm shower. A loved one makes you a cup of tea, and you wrap yourself in a blanket. What does it feel like? In some mysterious way, it feels better than never having been freezing outside and experiencing the same Uh, temperature, the same blanket, the same cup of tea, somehow it's better on the other side of the pain of being left outside than it would be if you hadn't been. And then the following evenings when you hear that wind howling and you're inside, you remember when you were caught out in the cold. And the gratitude fills you and it feels good. The same is true when you're famished and you get something to eat or you're thirsty and you finally get something to drink. The thought and memory of the pain of the past and the present comfort actually serves to increase the pleasure of the comfort you have received on the other side of it. Could it be that this is true of our life in Christ? That's what I experience. When we sing songs of God's faithfulness, When I look at my beautiful wife, when I go on a walk downtown by the river and look at the sunset, I remember the nights when I was on my bedroom floor and I didn't want to live anymore. I remember those nights and I remember what God did in those evenings and the pleasure of my present My present hope in Jesus is deepened because of the pain of my past. And Jesus' saving kindness, he showed me there. And that reality, the good life, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, makes absolutely no sense if pleasure is the prize, which is what the world says. Makes absolutely no sense. It's folly. The, The Beatitudes only make sense 
when we know and abide in the truth that the good life at its very core, at its very heart, is Jesus Christ himself. Knowing him, abiding in him. Jesus himself prays in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word eternal life is not physical life, it's fullness of life. Jesus is saying here and in Matthew 5 that fullness of life is knowing the living Jesus. So even if I lose everything, I'm blessed because I have him, he says. C.S. Lewis said, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So the question for us to sit with for a bit is who is Jesus in our pain? Jesus is a friend to the weak, wounded, and wayward. And he invites us to come, to not tarry until we're better, but to come in our weakness and in our poverty, the poverty that we feel when we lose the dreams that we long for. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is living with empty hands and bent knees. It's an acknowledgement that, that we don't have what it takes. It's an acknowledgement that all that we have is the Lord's. All that we have is a gift. And it's trusting that in Jesus, he declares that all he has is ours. Sometimes God has to take what is in our hands. The good life that we are dreaming for, he takes it in order to give us what we need and what will ultimately satisfy, which is himself. He takes in order to give the very thing that qualifies us to come to him, which is need. Are you in need this morning? And you qualify to come to Jesus. You qualify for his comfort. In affliction, Jesus weans us off of our independence, our self-reliance, our I-can-do-it-on-my-own mentalities in order to show us the blessing of dependence on him. Jesus is a friend to those who have small bank accounts, who feel the burn of not having enough, He's a friend to those with failed marriages or failing marriages. He's a friend to the unfulfilled, the disappointed, the disillusioned, the discouraged that have lost that which they've loved and longed for. He blesses those that fess up to the fact that they don't have what it takes for life. He dwells at the end of your rope where we are in over our head. He's the friend of you who are hiding in shame, too fearful to come out into the light with your sin and weakness. He bids you come. Come with your mixed motives, your depravity and your dignity, your sin and your suffering. Come with your anger, with your fear, with your confusion, with your cynicism about Jesus' words here in Matthew 5. He says, come. He doesn't ask you to come with pure motives, but simply that you would come with the empty hands of faith. Jesus says, when you lose, 
Come, and I will give you all that you need. When you, sin, when you sin, come, I will forgive and wash you. When you fail, come, I will meet you with embrace. Come, I will give you myself. You are mine and I am yours. Abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. And I experienced that. I cannot tell you the times when I'm, I'm on the floor in my bedroom years ago, deep in despair, not knowing which way was up, clearly feeling the fact that I got nothing to offer to the Lord. And he came to me and he met me. He saw me and I saw him seeing me. And he, he loved me in a way that nobody else could. And he comforted me. And sometimes he comforted me not with an emotional experience, but with a fact, a truth that he was holding me fast and never letting go. And that was enough. And yet much of the time, as quickly as we come, we flee back to our own comfort. And so we return again and again. Jesus says, come. And we say, I'm going. And he says, come. And so we return, we receive, we abide. And we do it again and again and again. And as we come, Jesus changes our sin and our suffering. He transforms our pain into a purposeful tool in his hand both for us and for others. He refines us. He's making us beautiful with ugly things as we lean into his favor in the midst of it. Hear these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Our mourning, joined with the comfort we receive from God, fuels our faith in our divine comforter and our love for those who are afflicted. Our mourning weakens our knees and brings them to the ground that we would bow to bless the God of all comfort with poverty of spirit. And it is in that bowing that our legs are actually strengthened to rise and walk in love for him and for our neighbor. The blessedness of mourning doesn't minimize our pain. Jesus' statement here is not uh, trivial, trite. He doesn't say, well, blessed are those who mourn, so you better feel better right now. It's a promise. It gives meaning to our pain. So that in the midst of the, the difficulty of mourning, I see you and I love you. What if we were a community of comforted mourners who actively lamented in hope? What if we were a community like that in which, similar to Jesus, the afflicted felt at home because they knew that they were understood and that they were brought to the feet of Jesus? What if we were a people that were increasingly dissatisfied with what is with the world and increasingly satisfied with the living Jesus? As a community, our sin and suffering can now serve as agents of grace that can build up those who are suffering and even remind ourselves of who the Lord is. For the comfort we receive from Jesus is not just for the present, but for our future. 
We lament in hope that one day we will be made new. Jesus declares in verse 6 later on, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The word Jesus uses there for righteousness means to be as you ought to be. As we experience affliction and suffering and as we mourn, we become acutely aware that the world is not as it ought to be, that our bodies are not as they ought to be, that our hearts are not as they ought to be. We ourselves remain bent toward sin. And when we suffer loss and endure affliction of various kinds, of which the Lord honors and sees, we start to hunger and thirst less for what is and more for what is to come. We're comforted by Jesus' life in us right here, right now, and we are comforted by the promise that the suffering we endure right now will end and dissolve into peace. Perfect peace. Jesus promises you today that there is a coming day when your weeping will end and when your tears will be dried up in divine love forever. Right now, the Spirit of God dwells within you, groaning with wordless prayers to the Father, pleading for us and applying the promise of God that we will be satisfied finally and fully, for we will taste and see that He is good, for we will see Him and have Him. And in seeing him as he is, we will be made like him. And that is our greatest good. We will finally know the glory that Paul speaks of that isn't worth comparing to the present suffering that we're enduring. We'll get it. We'll understand the mysterious and holy truth that beyond our comprehension in love, God was working all of it for our good. Even when we didn't see him, even when we didn't understand, he was working all of it for our good and for his glory. The good, the bad, the ugly, for our good. And even when we couldn't see, see him, he was holding us fast in love. That is the hope in which we are saved. That is the comfort that Jesus promises to those who mourn. That is the hope that we find comfort in today and of which we cling to until that final day comes. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you with all that's in our hearts. We don't tarry. We come to you and we come to you in the, the ways that we feel pain and loss and grief and even frustration about those things, we, the, the mess of mourning. And we pray that you would show us what it means that you bless us in our mourning that you comfort us in our mourning. And even if we don't feel comforted today, Lord, help us to hope, help us to persevere until we do, knowing that you will and that you will answer us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.